The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. As I always like to start off by saying uh, thank you for joining. I'm going to have this on all your favorite podcast platforms. I've been gradually releasing prior conversations, which are largely evergreen. You'll see that on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all that good stuff. I'm actually quite excited for this conversation with Vincent, given uh, some of the research I've seen that he's put out, which is really interesting and thought-provoking. So we should have a good conversation here. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of The Lead Lag Report, is joining me for the hour. Vincent Delard, who, like I said, has a, a phenomenal way of thinking about markets here. But Vincent, for those who are not familiar with who you are, talk about your background. How'd you get involved in markets and what are you doing with Stonex? Thanks for having me. I got involved with markets. Is I don't know, I graduated grad school before the OA crisis. And at the time, if you could open an Excel spreadsheet, you could have a job at a hedge fund. So, And then um, I've been doing independent research for about 15 years. First at a small shop called, called Shrimp Tabs, focusing on, on money flows, which I think is extraordinarily important if you want to understand the dynamic of really any market. It's At the end of the day, it's all about flows. And then I launched the Euro product for NetDavis Research. Done that for about seven years. And I joined StoneX as the global macro strategist six years ago. And it's, it's been fantastic. StoneX is a you know big institutional broker, lots of clients around the world. And they, they gave me the, the freedom to really think about markets and, and publish kind of long-term thought pieces on asset allocation and the economy. And as some of you may know, I've been very early on the inflation core. I've been writing about inflation for the past three, four years. And finally, starting to see a lot of the things that I expected to happen are, are happening and they're happening fast. So it's a good time to speak. All right. So you, you described yourself as an inflationista. And if I weren't in the business, I think that's like a coffee drink from Starbucks. But I want, to, I want you to go through... You said three years ago you've been kind of, kind of pounding the table on this inflation story, which we're now seeing unfold. What is it that you were writing about and seeing back then that led us to this place? Because obviously back then, no one could have seen COVID. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if you remember, but I think it's May of 2019, Bloomberg Business Suite had this cover titled The Death of Inflation. And for those who follow market, that was like an echo to one of the cover they had in 1979 called The Death of Equities, which of course was the start of a secular bull market. And so that, that's when I started really looking at inflation. And mostly at the time, I was not thinking of COVID, obviously. I was thinking mostly about demography, especially the massive squeeze that's happening in East Asia. I've always seen the, the great moderation of inflation, the 
kind of that miraculous drop of inflation in the, in the late 90s as the result of um, really two things. The most important one was China's entry in the WTO and the fact that all of East Asia was undervaluing their currencies, is effectively subsidizing consumption in the West and then reinvesting these surpluses in Western capital markets, keeping yields down. So that was the first force. And then the second force, which happened later in the 2010s, was the shale revolution. And it seemed to me that by the end of the 2010s, we were getting to an end on this era. In terms of shale, obviously, the, the bubble had turned to bust. The investment was stopping. Decline rates were accelerating. The oil, the oil market was getting more and more imbalanced. And then in terms of China and East Asia in general, labor forces had peaked around 2014. Currencies were starting to rise. And this development model of subsidizing export and subsidizing consumption to the West made no sense for China. And just as the prior model was deflationary, I expected the new model to be inflationary. A lot of people bash the Fed, but the Fed is an institution that has a lot of very smart people, you can argue, right? We can define what intelligence is versus being smart. But, you know, there's, these are people that are looking at all, at all kinds of data. And, you know, in your recent note, you made this point that it's really remarkable that Powell essentially admitted that the Fed is only, is maybe is maybe still sort of not clear on exactly what creates inflation. My question to you is, what is it that the Fed has missed in this, right? Because is it that they don't really understand inflation now? Or is it that, they have so many mandates, so much pressure to do so many things outside of their core objective that it creates all this noise and all these errors in their in their policy formation. Talk about that dynamics. I do think that inflation is simple if you don't have to do that much. Uh, if you have too much to do, then inflation becomes much more complicated for the Fed. Yeah, both your points are entirely correct. And I think both questions must be answered. So I'm going to start with the the easier one, the first one, which is what did they miss? I think that the policy mistake really was their misunderstanding of the labor market in 2020, 2021 after COVID. So just walking back, the last hockey cycle from 2015, 2018, the Fed basically over-tightened. There was this debate internally at the Fed between Neil Kashkari and then the Kaplan and the other Hawks. And the Hawks said, no, we need to normalize policy. And Kashkari was saying, no, we need to wait for the labor market to normalize before we start normalizing rates. And in hindsight, it turns out that it was the, the dots. Kashkari was right. So after COVID hit, the Fed really went on the Kashkari side and it started to think, OK, we will not remove any accommodation until the labor market fully normalizes. And the problem is that the labor market never normalized. If you look at the participation rate, we're still 2 percentage points below to where we are, we were before. There's about 7 million missing workers. And the Fed kept thinking, oh, these guys are going to come back to labor force, and this is what will make this inflation transitory. What they did not understand is that a lot of these workers either left the labor force, developed some addiction, or started working in the economy and had no interest coming back. So the labor market structurally changed after COVID and the Fed did not understand that in large part because its models are kind of, you know, antiquated. When they want to do a survey of the labor force, they, you know, they ask GE and G IBM and GM, but that's not where the growth of the economy is. The growth of the economy is in the gig economy and the Fed doesn't see that. And as a result, it kept the accommodation for too long and we ended up with this, you know, 9% plus inflation. That is a mistake. Now, as far as your second questions go, it's about the difficulty of holding to an objective when you have so many conflicting mandates. I think this is this is something that's going to play out for the next decade. You know, if, if you go back to the history of the Fed, I mean, it's uh, at first they only had one mandate, and then we added a dual mandate, and then during the the 2010s, because inflation was gone, 
suddenly the Fed was free to pursue more more things, right? They, they, they no longer had an inflation problem. The inflation problem was taken care of by China, basically. So they started pursuing things like asset, basically. The wealth effect is a fancy way for the Fed to say that it's going to target a price on the S&P 500, basically. And then they started, you know, adding more and more esoteric things, like the, the wage gap between minorities and non-minorities or climate change in the case of PCB. So you see this proliferation of mandates, which... I would argue have nothing to do with monetary policy at the end of the day. And because they have so many mandates, it's that much harder for them to go back to the initial mandate, which is price stability. And I think the story of the 2010s will be that we'll have a, sorry, 2020s, we have a much more constrained central bank. We lived in the era of what I call the central bank god. You know, you had these magazine covers with Greenspan, the committee to save the world, or Benanke, the man who save the financial crisis, I don't think you'll see that in the next decade. This era of, you know, omnipotence from central bankers is over. Now, and that's exactly what I was hitting on, sort of these implied almost social mandates. If that just creates, again, these kind of butterfly effects, these secondary tertiary effects, then, then complicate their own understanding of inflation, right? Because, again, the more complex any system is, the harder it is to really get a sense of how effort impacts conclusion, right? So I think that's, that's an important point. Now, you've, you've made this point before also, Vincent, that uh, inflation is always and everywhere a psychological phenomenon. I've argued that inflation is not a monetary phenomenon. It's a leadership phenomenon, because if you had discipline, presumably on the fiscal and monetary side, you wouldn't be in the place that we're at now. But I want you to talk about the psychology of higher rates for a moment, because that I don't think is really addressed. And really what I'm hitting on there is the velocity of money and and sort of implications for future rate path. Correct. And I was really happy about the Jackson Hole speech yesterday because Powell finally acknowledged what I felt all along, which I summarize as inflation is inflationary. There is a psychological element to inflation that you, you cannot really capture with you know, your standard model on you know, either the Fisher equation, which doesn't really work, or you know, an econometric model. And uh, you can actually you can actually see that in the data. I mean, if you look at the distribution of inflation over time, it's not a normal distribution. It has indeed a peak at two point three, but it has a right tail that is far longer. And if you look at the serial correlation of inflation as well. It's not, there is serial correlation to inflation once you reach seven to uh, five to 10%, i.e. high inflation begets high inflation. And that is the, the expectation channel. You know, if you have a, if you have a one-time inflation shock, you know, suddenly prices rise to 10%, most people will actually wait to buy, for example, the used cars or um, used cars price are crazy right now. I'm not going to buy it. But then if it stays like that at 10% for a couple of years, then your incentives start to change. You think, oh, no, I should buy it before it gets expensive. If, same thing if you're a creditor. You want you, you will want your money back faster. If you are a, a company, you'll, you'll ask to be paid faster. And then if you are a union, you're going to start to negotiate for higher pay increase. You also have the, the perverse phenomenon that governments need to throw more money at the problem. Oh, gas prices are too high. Let me sense a subsidy so that people can afford this higher gas price, which we are seeing everywhere across Europe or in some of the, the, the bills passed in the U.S. So this is kind of this inflationary spiral that typically you see in, in developing economies. Like this is the story of, of Latin America for most of the past century, but you are starting to see it develop in the U.S. And so I think the, the variable you need to monitor is, is velocity. If you think in terms of, of the Fisher equation, right, it's MV equals PT, the monetary mass times the velocity is equal to nominal GDP, We've tried a lot to act on nominal GDP by, by playing with M, the, the, the monetary base, 
that didn't work during QE, right? We increased them as much as we could without any effect on, on nominal GDP because velocity was plummeting at the same time. One possibility that I'm looking at is that as we shrink M, the velocity starts to increase and potentially counteracts the, the drop in the monetary base. I'm especially looking at, at banks. We have a very low leverage ratio for most banks. After COVID, we saw a spike in, in deposits, collapse in loans. So now the deposit ratio is on 0.5. Are we going to normalize that? I mean, maybe, I don't know. Banks are pretty healthy. They have good good balance sheet. Consumer defaults are very low. Lending is profitable again because rates are rising. So you start to see a credit pickup. We're seeing 15 to 20% growth in, in consumer loans across most banks. And maybe also inflation adds to this dynamic. You see credit card balance start to rise. The demand for credit is coming back in large public inflation. And then that makes them lend more. And that could create this kind of inflationary spiral that we're talking about. Yeah, and by the way, I'm glad you mentioned that, that point about velocity of money and, and higher rates, because I've argued for, for a while here that you could really have runaway inflation as the Fed is hiking rates, because if everybody expects the Fed to keep hiking rates, then the velocity of money might pick up because everyone's afraid of what's coming in the future, right? So that actually, to your point, increases inflation and kind of counteracts the Fed directly. Now, you mentioned this point about behavioral changes and and how inflation gets entrenched into mentality. Is there any any evidence or suggestions around, you know, how many months of prolonged inflation does does a population start to really believe that this is the new norm? Right? Because I think that's sort of the the real question mark. Are we past the point of no return where now it it's it's almost like making making new habit. It takes like twenty one days supposedly to to form a new habit. How many days does it take for a society to start really believing inflation is entrenched? We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. Unfortunately, I'm going to give you the typical economist answer, which is it depends. And, and we'll find out. I would say for now, we're not there yet. If you, certainly if you look at market-based measure of inflation expectation, it's it's really not there, right? I mean, you look at your inflation swap. It's it's 1% for the one-year swap. Sorry, 3% for the one-year swap, and then 25 over the long term. Even if you look at survey-based, it's it's picking up, but not that much. So I don't think we are here yet. But in terms of timing, like I said, it depends. In, in I think it's we are at a peculiar moment in the U.S. because anybody who's older, who's younger than me, me included, hasn't seen inflation. You know, that, that disinflationary trend started in, with the Volcker rate hikes in 79, 80, 81. We have at least two to three generations who are have grown up in a deflationary mindset. So it's probably going to take longer now than it would have, say, in the in the early 80s when the memory of the great inflation was, was, was fresh, or in Latin America, where at the first sign of inflation, people start to adjust their behaviors. But I mean, over time, the longer we stay in that high inflation range, the, the likelier the, this possibility becomes, which I think kind of justifies the speech that Powell gave yesterday. I mean, he said that in so many words, basically, is if I don't act now, it will be that much later, sorry, that much harder later. And in my mind, that justifies kind of front front loading the hikes 
especially given the fact that the Fed, you know, these, I mean, higher rates may break things, right? So you have to be very, uh, it's like you have a gun with only a few bullets. So you you want to hopefully strike early before it's too late. Yeah, and Powell's speech reminded me of a little bit of a, a Rocky Three with Clubber Lang and Mr. T when it's like, what's your prediction for the fight? And Mr. T goes, you know, pain, right? Which is remarkable actually to hear Powell say, all right, but let's get some of the audience here. Thank you. Yeah, great question. W- one thing I will mention on this is, I think that what you see in Sri Lanka, uh, in Jordan, in Peru, solidifies my point on inflation being inflationary, right? The more inflation you have, the more unrest you have, the more you see populist government take over. I think a lot of the kind of geopolitical chaos that we are seeing since 2022 is in part the product of inflation. Inflation brings chaos to the world, and then this chaos itself becomes inflationary. But I digress. That was not your question. Your question was about opportunities in EM. I mean, I, I think the, again, I'm going to give the typical economist answer, which, which I hate to do, but it depends. You have really kind of a split between emerging markets for some emerging markets, which, you know, you need to import the food and need to import energy and have a high borrowing cost. This is a borrowing cost in dollars. This is a perfect squeeze, right? Because the, your balance of payment flips from surplus to deficit. You have all these debt that comes due, and you need to borrow. You cannot borrow in your own currency, which is collapsing against the dollar. That's right. The Fed is hiking, so we are basically redoing the the playbook from from the eighties. I, I don't think that's over. I mean, typically these kind of balance of payment crises are devastating. You could see currencies lose like 80 percent of their value, and you only get you only get out by writing down the value of all assets. There are, however, other emerging markets which. I think are very well positioned in this environment. And to me, it's specifically Latin America. You know, you look at Mexico, the, the Mexican peso has been pretty solid at 1920, one of the few currencies that has held up against the dollar. You see a lot of money coming back to Mexico because of remittances, because of Americans moving there. Mexico is a country that has uh, almost energy independency. At least they have a big oil set. They are big uh, agricultural producers. They benefit from the demand that used to come from, from, from places like Russia or Ukraine. So I would say the same thing for, for Brazil, maybe, Colombia. Especially if you go to places like Brazil, Colombia, the, the currencies have dropped a lot more. Valuations there are very, very, very cheap. And also, and very importantly in Latin America, what you've seen, very early hikes. The CELIC was above 10% before Lagarde raised the deposit rate to, to 0% in Europe. So if you, if you think in terms of carry trade, in many Latin, Latin American countries, you have almost 1% of carry every month. So you have really, to me, a setup that kind of resembles that of maybe 2002, 2003 for, for many Latin American markets, which will benefit from this new era of, of high inflation. I would not be, I think it's going to be a lot harder for some of the either Eastern European or Middle East, North Africa, and Asian emerging markets because the shock is much, it's asymmetric. Uh, that is an excellent question. I, I, I think the way I would reframe it in, in economic terms is, is really a question about the wealth effect. You know, basically, I, I think what you're saying is as you write down the value of assets that reduces households perceived sometimes real wealth and that will kind of reduce their demand. I, I, would, I would have two counterpoints to that. One is that in general, the wealth effect is not a very efficient tool of monetary policy. We saw that after the OA crisis. I mean, basically, central bankers all around the world relied on the wealth effect or the portfolio substitution effect in order to boost demand. 
And that hasn't worked all that well. It takes a very, very long time for a, a, an increase or decrease in wealth to have back up cons- on consumption. So I expect the same to be true in, in the 2010s with these rising asset prices and sluggish economic growth. In the 20s, I would expect falling asset prices and, and better nominal growth at least. But it's going to take a lot of asset write down in order to slow consumption would be my, my first point. The second one is... Yes, we are seeing asset price deflation. I live in the in the Bay Area in San Francisco. Things really turned around this summer. But I mean, it's coming from such a high base. I mean, it's 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 all a flow versus level discussion. Yes, on the flow side, I kind of agree with your view. But if you look at household net number that's reported by the in the Fed flow of funds data, it increased by forty trillion since March of twenty twenty. For comparison, during the awake, household net worth decreased by only eight trillion. So what we've had in the past two years is like five great recession on top of each other, just the other way around. So sure, we are writing down these assets. You are seeing you know, some, some crypto, maybe even real estate prices, stock market going down, bond, 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 bond market value going down. But given from where we started, you know, it's, it's like you know, you, we put on 100 pounds and now we've lost 10. So to me, the wealth shock is still positive because we are still kind of living through the tail of this insane rally that we have in the past two years. And the same way we have all these accumulated savings from COVID that hasn't been processed. If you look at the savings rate, yeah, it's back to 5%. People are starting to put money back on the credit card. But for two years, we had a 15% savings rate and people took down their, their credit card balances very, very aggressively. So to me, that means that the consumer is in much better position to handle higher prices and I would argue also higher rates. I think there is this belief that, you know, the Fed is going to break things. Like, as you said, it, the economy cannot handle positive real rates. I don't know that. You know, I, I agree that was the case for most of the past decade. But, but I kind of want to see, I mean, we, we already, you know, we, we've already had a pretty good hiking cycle. And, and so far, the Fed has not broken. In my mind, the economy is not in recession. Okay, you you are seeing indeed a, a the, the real estate market is gonna is gonna cool down. I, I I'm not questioning that. You are seeing new supply. By the way, all that is very healthy in my opinion. But I I don't think you will have the same kind of systemic effect that you had in 08. You know, in 08, you know, people borrowed at a at a variable rate. Most of the credit credit was issued to subprime borrowers. You know, today 90% of mortgages were issued at fixed rates, so you're not gonna see defaults as much as we used to see them. Equity. I mean, most you know home prices are up by you know twenty, thirty percent everywhere since since the March low. So you have such a big cushion of equity that yeah, it's possible that prices drop by ten percent, but you will not see the kind of default foreclosures that we saw in in two thousand eight. So yes, things like the 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 bubbles can pop, and I think they should pop, but I don't think you'll see the kind of deflationary spiral that we saw in '08 when you know people lost their homes, then they lost their job. And then demand dropped, and 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 then you had all these foreclosed assets that were trying to sell. There was no bid there. Again, I think people tend to fight the last war, and we've been so scarred by away that every time we see something that looks a little bit like away, we think you know it's going to happen all over again. But to me, the conditions are very different today. Let me reset the room real quick for the remaining half an hour or so. Please, everyone, first of all, make sure you follow. Vincent here on Twitter, as you can tell, uh, a very strong communicator. Again, my name is Michael Guyad, publisher of Lead Lag Report. But let's go to a uh, next question. We'll be back after a quick break. 
Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. I think it's going to be sticky for, for the next decade. And I would push back a bit on, on the savings glut, at least going forward. Yes, I agree. You know, for, for most of the past decade, we had this. The problem was the fundamental economic problem of the past decade was not enough demand. And, and that, that, that lack of demand came in large part because you had very large economies which were suppressing the consumption to accumulate these surpluses. So that's the Japanese model, the Chinese model, the German model. And they were building these huge current account surpluses and then reinvesting it back into the U.S. Treasury market, into U.S. assets. And, and, and that, that was like, a, to use the Brent Johnson analogy, like a milkshake, right? They were, they were just sucking in excess demand and, and, and storing it in, in, in treasuries. I think this is changing fast. If you look at Japan, I think they have a current account deficit. Germany has its first current account deficit since, since reunification. And even China, yeah, there was, a, there, there was a boost to export during the lockdowns, but I'm not sure that we will see this, this era of, of, of surpluses in, in, in East Asia and Europe as much as we used to. And, and in large part, it's demography, right? If you look at the, the demographic pyramid in, in East Asia and Europe, what happened is you had this massive generation age between 45 to 65, basically your, your boomers. The baby boom was a little bit later in Europe and somewhat later in, in China. And they reached peak savings ability. And they were in a fantastic position to save because very often the parents were dead. Right? I mean, China, you had a cultural revolution, great leap forward. So the old generation was tiny. And then the new generation was tiny because of the one-child policy or the collapse in birth rates across East Asia and Europe. So you had this huge bulge of people of, who were net savers. And uh, it's going to change. Right? As soon as this generation enters retirement, instead of providing net savings to the global economy, it will be a net draw, right? When you retire, obviously, whatever you consume doesn't come from you. You, you have to get it from somebody else. And that somebody else, in the case of, of, of China, is a generation that's half the size. So if, if you look at your ratio of you know, employed people to retired people, this is going to change dramatically. And I think that will make the surplus evaporate. And, and to me, that would, that would contribute to this global rise on inflation and yields as well, because we cannot recycle the surpluses of, of Europe and East Asia into the U.S. market. I don't know if they'll succeed. I, I know they'll try. <laughs> I think this is a, a problem that the CCP is very well aware, very well aware of. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why they are basically shutting down their economy and keeping it shut. I mean, they have a, a Herculean task in front of them. I mean, they, they, the, the growth has been very unbalanced for you know, decades now, I'm, I'm sure all of you are familiar with the work of, of Michael Petitis, who's really, you know, documents this as the fundamental problem of, of the Chinese economy is, is this reliance on, on investment and, and exports rather than consumption and the difficulty to switch that model. I, I think as you switch this from one model to the next, this is the period that is the most dangerous. I, I can't remember, I think it's a Tocqueville quote, but I'm not sure of that, but the, you know, the, the, the the most dangerous moment for a, a political regime is when it starts to reform itself, when you, you try to move from one order to a new order. And, and I think in China, they are trying to do that. And the reason why they have these COVID-0 policies is 
because they know that the road ahead of them is very rocky and they want to have full control of what goes on. And they also want to avoid capital leaking outside of China. Now, your two main capital leaks for China was people buying condos in, in Vancouver and Miami and Toronto. So you close the capital account to prevent money from leaving China. And then it was tourism. They close things down, which seems to be what they're doing. Then they can focus on internal reforms. And I don't know if it's going to work or not. One thing I'll say about China is that it is different from your normal emerging market in the sense that the debt is held internally. Like obviously, you know, assets will need to be written down. There will be massive crisis. But to me, the, the, the biggest problem for emerging markets is when they borrow from foreigners, because at some point, the foreigners don't want to lend anymore. And, um, you know, you get this balance of payment crisis, currency crisis, yada, yada, it's self-reinforcing forces. China is not in this situation. China borrowed internally. So it's more of a matter of like working out transfers between various groups than it is a typical balance of payment crisis. So I don't know whether they'll succeed or not, but I think they have a better shot at succeeding than, you know, your average country because of this abnormal saving situation and because of the abnormal level of control that the government has. Vince, I want to go to something you've you've talked about before, which I think is is interesting. I've never heard of this before as a talking point, but you address this this idea that trust is inversely correlated to inflation. I want you to talk about that for a bit because I think that's an interesting societal d- dynamic. Which you know, there's always an element of distrust when it comes to the people and the policymakers, but maybe not at the levels we've seen in this cycle. Yes, th- thank you. So it's just kind of an an observation, and it goes back to this idea that inflation is primarily psychological, more so than and anything you can model. You know, if you go to Switzerland or Japan or Scandinavia, inherently, you know that things are going to work, right? You you know that the contract will be enforced. You know that the politicians will not be corrupt. You know that people will behave according to a certain set of, of, of beliefs and, and values so you can rely on each other. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons why in, in countries with high trust, you rarely see inflation at all. Even when you have very inflationary policies, I mean, Japan has been monetizing deficits since the late 90s. I mean, it's, you know, highest debt to GDP ratio in the world. It's built, you know, bridges to nowhere and done a bunch of stuff, which in any other nation would be massively inflationary. Yet, you know, there is no inflation in Japan. The same is true in Switzerland. You know, they keep manipulating their currency. They keep, they have like much higher wages than neighbor. And yet there is no inflation in Switzerland. I think it's because there is a lot of trust. People think that, you know, they, they, they don't second guess what's going to happen. If you compare that to a country like like Brazil, there there is this in Brazil they call it the Brazil price. Everything costs more in Brazil. Everything is harder in Brazil, even though Brazil has everything, right? Every commodity you can imagine. It has a you know a big population, it's a continent-wide economy, and yet nothing seems to work. And, and to me, it doesn't work because people don't trust each other. They don't trust the government to do its job. They don't trust the police. They don't trust their neighbors. They don't trust their 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 partners. So it's like a, a silent tax on the economy that manifests itself through higher structural inflation. So if you're the central bank of Brazil, you have to be a lot more aggressive than the central bank of Switzerland. You know, you have to keep rates at, you know, 7 8% at all time because you are, you are in a structurally high inflation economy. My thesis is that the West in general, and maybe the U.S. in particular, is moving down the road of, of Brazil and becoming a low-trust economy. And you can see that in, in public surveys. I think just 20% of Americans think the country is on the, wrong, the right track. You look at the, the trust in Congress, the trust in any sort of institution, the trust in the media, and you've seen that plummet for the past 40 years. You also see the rise of populism. I mean, 
If you look at Europe, we're moving towards basically Latin American model where you have a third of the population which dreams of some sort of a socialist Ethiopia, a third of the population which, which wants kind of a, a fascist law and order type of government, and then at the middle uh, in Brazil called the Central, or like a, a centrist party that is basically just benefiting from the system and tries to keep things the way they are because it benefits them. So as Europe and, and the US move towards this kind of low trust equilibrium, I would expect structurally higher inflation. Yeah, which actually really fast because it's, I don't see how you can get trust back unless you have competence. And it seems very hard to find competence when it comes to the public sector, given everything that we've seen to this to this date here. All right. So the, the trust dynamic is interesting. The one that obviously gets the most headline is is oil, energy prices. I want you to talk through the secular cycle here favoring or maybe not favoring commodities and how the maybe self-reinforcement of psychology around inflation might impact the cost-push inflation side of things. Because if you're talking about psychology, you know, that's probably more on the demand pull side, right? What about the cost-push side? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's harder to, uh, on a short-term basis, you basically need to make a <laughs> A forecast on the oil price, which is, which is always difficult. One thing I'll say well, about well, well, I will say that real quick. This it is important though, to, and I agree that it's hard to obviously predict this stuff. But there's a strong correlation between break evens, inflation expectations, and and WTI. Yes, yes. No, if you look at the the correlation between the energy CPI and the overall CPI, it is it's close to ninety percent. Even though really energy is only just ten percent of your consumption basket, but because it's so much more volatile it drives the variance of the overall index. I mean, it's basically the, the risk parity argument. The most volatile asset will, will, will drive the, the volatility of the portfolio almost regardless of its weight. So that's why in the short term, I don't believe in it, the, the kind of immaculate disinflation, the view that you know inflation is going to fall down to 3% in the next six months. But if oil prices remain weak, and we'll have very favorable base effect coming into February because it'll be the, the one-year anniversary of the Ukrainian invasion, you could indeed see a, a massively disinflationary. Um, it's almost like a you know when you fly uh, in a plane and then you you hit a, a, and the plane just drops. It could happen, but I'll say two things. One, it's not sure that it does happen. I mean, you're basically betting the house on extremely volatile prices at a time of maximum geopolitical uncertainty. And if I look at the physical market, I'm not sure that you know we could we'll see this falling oil price. I mean, we have. We've been releasing 8 million barrels a day from the SPR for the past month or so in order to balance the market. We had the Chinese lockdowns. You have actual restrictions in Europe. And still, you know, we're still looking at, you know, 90 plus on WTI, close to 100 on Brent. So despite all these efforts, the market remains pretty tight. We had a very backward market, which usually is a sign that, that you have a, a, you know, strong, strong demand on the front end of the curve. You had very high refining margins. All these things are not going to be solved. You know, the releasing the SPR is by definition a short-term fix. So I am not. Con- I, I personally, I do not expect energy prices to drop massively in the next six to twelve months. But if it does happen, yes, I would acknowledge that inflation should fall very rapidly. If that is the case. The second part to this, the second answer to this question is: even if we have this inflation from the energy and basic material sectors, that will do nothing to offset the structural inflation that I'm talking about. That's coming mostly from the labor market. That's coming from rents. That's coming from demography. So my view is that it's kind of going to play out like the 70s. So remember 1973, we had the Arab oil embargo. Oil prices go through the roof. Inflation in the U.S. goes to 12%. The Fed raises rate to 12%. And then it forces the economy into recession. Oil prices fall. 
and inflation falls to 4%, the Fed thinks, okay, I've done my job here, drops right to 4%, expecting that inflation would normalize. And then the big surprise was inflation stayed at 4% throughout the recession. And then as soon as the economy recovered in 75, 76, you saw inflation accelerate, ultimately peaking at 16, 17% by the end of the decade. So that's kind of my model for inflation. Yes, we will likely fall from now, but I think that 9.1% reading is a peak in this cycle, but it will not be the peak. In terms of shortages and supply chain disruptions, I, I like the work, of, and I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with him, is, is Peter Zehan. So he's the, uh, the author of This United Nation, The End of the World is Just Beginning, and he has this particularly kind of firm view that the order that we came to life, where basically the U.S. Navy to trade and allowed places should not be rich in the first place to develop very rapidly, is unraveling because the U.S. doesn't have the will or even the capacity to maintain that order anymore. And, and as you see that, as you see this order unravel, you will see these fantastically complex supply chains start to unravel, and that will make life a lot more difficult in places like Sri Lanka, like Bangladesh, and probably even Germany or, or China. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating read. I, I'd recommend anyone to read his books. He's a, he's a very smart guy. I suspect he exaggerates a bit because that's the, <laughs> the nature of the industry, right? If you... <laughs> In order to really make your point, you sometimes have to force double down. But I think he's right. Over the long term, we are seeing a kind of a disintegration of global trade, deglobalization. We are going to move to smaller supply chains. We are seeing the world kind of fall into blocks that are increasingly mistrustful of each other. You'll have your, your you know, Russia, China, Iran, maybe throwing Turkey there that are like, okay, we're going to do things our way. We don't trust each other. Like that, that moment that we came through after the end of the Cold War, the, the end of history, the view that, you know, free trade and democracy would progressively take over and we have this one global order. I think it's, it's, that moment has passed and we are coming back to a much more nationalistic, to some extent protectionist order, which means that it's going to be it's going to be less efficient. You're going to have to duplicate supply chains because you can no longer trust that you will be able to provide what you need from you know, East Asia or the, the Persian Gulf or West Africa. And to me, again, that, that contributes to, to inflation. We had a fantastically efficient economy because of this global division of labor. And as you remove that, you create structural inflation. By the way, I got to give you credit. You mentioned two names, Michael Pettis and Peter Zion, both of whom I had on Spaces, and both of whom are, if you're, anybody's curious, I did those interviews. They're available on YouTube, soon to be on Spotify. I got to put that plug in real quick. And again, everybody here, please make sure you follow Vince. Over the long term, I, I tend to agree with you, but I, I would advise against, it's kind of like you, you read a book and you you have the spoiler, you know, you know what the end is, and you see you just jump to the end where, you know, but, but, you know, to get to the end, you need to go through the, through the middle first. And, and just because you know the end of the book doesn't mean that the stuff in the middle is not going to happen. And, and to me, the stuff in the middle is that we have this very stimulated economy as consumer with a healthy, a very healthy balance sheet with insanely hot labor markets. I mean, we have 11 million job openings in the U.S. On a normal recession, you destroy about 2.5 million job openings. That would take us down to nine. At the pre-COVID peak, we had seven million job openings. So even a like event would really not solve your labor market issues. And and again, people have money. Yes, eventually they they'll need to take on more debt. That debt will create problems. But 
we still have these deeply negative real rates, you know, corporate profits. I mean, they, they're still fairly healthy, right? I mean, X energy is kind of falling, but overall it's, it's rising by 5%. Companies are able to pass on higher costs to consumers. I also think the U.S. in general is, you know, it's not that bad for the U.S. I mean, I, as you may have guessed, I'm French. Europe is screwed, yes. But the U.S., you know, you're basically energy independent, right? And, and, and you're, you're a big food exporter. So you have a shock where oil prices go through the roof and, and ag prices increase. It's, it's really just redistribution of income from your consumer discretionary sector to the energy and basic material. But as a whole, if you think in terms of, of aggregate demand, it, it may even be a positive shock for the U.S. You also have a lot of, of money going into the U.S. because of the uh, political uncertainty that we're discussing, Sri Lanka, yada, yada. So again, I, I'm kind of in the camp that growth is going to be more resilient, especially in the U.S. than people give it credit for. How will decreasing consumer spending affect the overall inflation? PCE was up 0.1%, but consumer debt credit revolving was up 2% for 2Q. So let's talk about the the impact of decreased consumer spending and all these stats around consumer debt and credit card utilization. Again, I, I think it's a flow versus level type of argument. So it depends what you look at. If you look at the flow, Yes, we are seeing this this rising balance. You're seeing, you know, people are putting the, you know, using the credit card to face rising prices, to absorb rising prices. And yeah, you think, well, it's not sustainable. Obviously, it's not. But we come from such a low level that I think we have room for this cycle to play out again. Don't jump to the end of the book. At some point, we have this kind of over-leveraged consumer where you can't add anymore and then yeah, maybe it will be deflationary then. But we're starting from the, if you look at the financial obligation ratio, meaning, you know, how much you have to pay on your credit card, uh, auto loan, mortgage, yada, yada. It, I think it's around 8%, which is the lowest since the 1980s. We also have the, uh, the student loan crisis is, you know, I mean, that, that's going to that's gonna help regardless of what you think about the ethical merit of the bill. A lot of people will see $10,000 of debt being written down. So again, I, I think the, the consumer can remain stronger than it's being credited for. And I, I would point to Europe here. I, I think one of the, the issues we have in, in the U.S. is we think inflation or recession, right? It's, it's kind of an either or. You could actually have it, have, it, have, have it both. That is the experience of Europe. Like I was in France for most of the summer. You know, Europe is in this kind of crazy squeeze where the currency has fallen below one. Energy prices are through the roof. And, and, and in general, Europeans have much less money than Americans, and we didn't have as much stimulus either. We didn't you know, partake in the whole meme stock, whatever. So you'd think that if there would be a place where you'd see demand destruction, that would be Europe. And still, this summer was insane. Everything was packed. You could not book a hotel. Every restaurant was packed, even though we had no Chinese tourists. Like you know, three years ago, half of the tourists in Paris were Chinese. And now we have the same level of occupancy, but it's all, I guess, French people, German, Belgians. So the, cons the consumption part of the economy is surprisingly resilient, even in a place where you have catastrophic GDP print, horrible you know, consumer business confidence, people are still spending. So to me, the US, where we still have broadly wages are keeping, keeping pace with inflation, we had much more stimulus, we had a much higher wealth effect from the past two years, I think we'll be able to live on that tail end of, of demand for you know, much longer than the market predicts. Certainly, I think that, you know, and, and, and to me, that's that's where the dovish pivot, the view that, oh, the, you know, we're going to have this massive recession in 2023. That may happen eventually, but I think the market is kind of, again, reading the end of the book before before having gone through the middle. 
the thing is like I love spoilers. So that's why I want to know what's at the end of the story. So anyway, I appreciate those that joined today. Everyone, please make sure you follow Vincent and enjoy the rest of your day because apparently tomorrow's gonna be a lot more expensive. So thanks, Vincent. Appreciate it. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.